Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that's cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. So, Allison, it's election season in Toronto again. Allison? Allison? Oh, Jono, I'm afraid Allison is off this month. Oh, uh, Katie, um, do, do we have like like an understudy or something? We sure do. Ah! Why, if it isn't Matt Elliott, Toronto Star columnist, professional city hall watcher, and municipal policy wonk who was once noted by the Globe for his mane of dark shoulder length hair. What are you doing here? Uh, you asked me to be here. And so we did, because Toronto <laughs> is currently in the midst of its most exciting mayoral election since at least 2014, yet I probably haven't paid less attention to a Toronto mayoral election since 2003. And while I feel pretty good about assessing the candidates on the top-level stuff, like which of them have DUIs or let a serial killer slip through their fingers or have, like, the same first and last name, I don't feel quite as well-equipped as I used to be to gauge which ones have a and a realistic handle on the issues that the city faces. Like, I don't even, off the top of my head, I couldn't even tell you what the city of Toronto's current operating budget shortfall is. Uh, it's like $1.5 billion, give or take. Well, that's like twice what it used to be about a decade ago, I think. So, like, of course, the, the question is, like, why are we talking about this on Wag the Doug, given that of the 102 people running for mayor, there isn't a Doug among them. And I mean, I think it's because Doug Ford has kind of sucked the fun out of municipal politics for me. Like, as long as he remains premier, the city will have limited control over its own governance. I mean, I guess municipalities in this country always exist at the whims of their province, but maybe it's like Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Like, Twitter users were always inherently at the mercy of the decisions of Twitter Inc., which could rewrite the rules at any time. But now there's like this guy in charge who particularly seems to get a kick out of being mercurial and hostile, of occasionally upending the premise of everything just because he has an idea that popped into his head and he can. Yeah, it's it's a bit like we're organizing a, a board game, like a, a game of Risk or Settlers of the Catan or something. But there's this real possibility that one of the players, or maybe somebody who isn't even really playing but is around, will just turn the whole board over. I want to kind of want to know why this still matters. I know it does, but I, it's, hard. it's getting harder and harder to articulate. And I want to know what Toronto's next mayor could do to wag Doug Ford before he decides to wag them. Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land, and my first voting age memory of a Toronto election was of a nude man shuffling up to me on the beach at Hanlands, offering a leaflet about David Miller and his 2003 promise to uh, kill the bridge to the Toronto Islands and halt the expansion of the airport. 
And I voted for Miller twice. And I get by 2007, Miller and I were on pretty bad terms. I still don't think we've ever bothered to patch that up. And I'm Matt Elliott, publisher of City Hall Watcher. And I moved to Toronto in 2008, very excited about the future of the city and the state that it would be in. And then in 2010, uh, Rob Ford was elected mayor. And suddenly I found myself sucked into the weird and wild world of municipal politics. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford and or 102 other people who were each able to scrounge up 25 signatures and $200. So the candidates for mayor in alphabetical order by last name are Bahira Abdul-Salam, Emmanuel Ake, Blake Acton, Sharif Ahmed, Asadul Alam, Guru Jesse Allen, Atif Ali, Dionysios Apostopoulos, Darren Atkinson, Jamie Atkinson, and oh, okay, I'll, I'll stop now. I just wanted to provide a brief moment of like, oh God, is he really going to do this? No, I'm not. But is there any chance, Matt, that Olivia Chow is not going to win? Uh, this is the time where anybody who's in this political reporting game like does like a big caveat to be like, you know, things can happen, events can occur, polls can be wrong. But I do think at this point, looking at where Olivia Chow stands in the poll, to see a result other than Olivia Chow winning on June 26th would be just like a, a massive polling error, the likes of which we haven't really seen before. There's not really a precedent for it, is I guess the best way to put it. But, you know, unprecedented things can happen. Yes, I mean, that's been actually much of Toronto politics the last <laughs> decade. That's sort of where I'm at is like... We're a week and a half out or probably, or I guess a week out now. I don't know what it would take for a person to blow a lead that big in the course of a week. Yeah, especially considering we already have a chunk of the vote that is in through early voting and mail-in voting. So, I mean, for, for those votes, like there's no take backs, like they are in. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, events that happen over the next week won't matter at all for those people. And like originally when she entered the race a couple months ago, I was like, why is she doing this? What reason do we have to believe that she'll be more successful than she was last time in 2014? I mean, that election started in January and ended in October, which was the length of a normal election then. Uh, but that time she finished in third place behind John Tory and Doug Ford. She got about 23% of the vote. But she entered in March that year. And throughout the spring, she maintained a healthy lead in the polls. I mean, it was up against Rob Ford and John Tory at the time, but still, she was out front. So, I mean, to me, it's like, okay, well, the answer is it's just a shorter campaign. This election kicked off in April, ends in June. And that's too short of time to blow a lead. Is that what she's doing? Is she doing anything else differently? Uh, I do think the time frame is an important factor. But I mean, at the risk of, of being cringe, I will make a, a West Wing reference. And, you know, the whole notion of let Bartlett be Bartlett from mm -hmm. the West Wing in terms of, you know, if you have a candidate, just let them be themselves. Olivia Chow in 2014 ran a campaign that felt like she was trying to be a different kind of candidate based on all the advice she was getting as the early front runner. And if you look at Olivia Chow on debate stages in 2014, she came off as, as very scripted, uh, very like she had been fed a bunch of lines that she need, knew she needed to hit and she was focused on hitting mm -hmm. those lines. And it just came off as, you know, not authentic Olivia Chow. Description for a mayor would be the following. A person that have division and a leadership skill 
to bring our city uh, to moving forward and have a very realistic goals and timetable to deliver that kind of service and would put customer service as the, the top priority. Uh, a leader that have proven track record with the experience that can deliver results. If you look at her on debate stages in 2023, it's like a way more relaxed, you know, person. She's she's making jokes. She's breezing through some of the criticisms that are being lodged at her in terms of property taxes and whatever else. And I think that's been a lot more effective for people who do tune in and, and watch those debates that it's just like, oh, yeah, there's Olivia Chow. We know her. And she seems to be up on stage being Olivia Chow. But, but we are talking debate. about housing, housing afford and affordability. But let me ask you a question. What is your plan for tenants like Dahlia? What, are, what about the thousand people that I spoke to two nights ago, actually last night, that are facing rent eviction? They're at Utopical. Let me tell you the problem. So they're, this is wonderful because, building, you know, time after time, buildings, she's going to take ownership of building houses, Mark, making it government-led, but, but she won't put a price tag people. on what it's going to take. All right, but let's give Olivia Chow a chance to respond, and then we'll come back to Mark Saunders. Listen to the people that are talking about their anxiousness. These are seniors that have lived in their building for 30, 40 years. They are facing, there's a thousand of them. I mean, I think that's a really good explanation. I certainly remember last time. It was very, very different. And I mean, last time she did the classic frontrunner thing where it seemed to play it very, very safe. And as much as like being scared, doing, being scared to do anything that might cost the lead, which almost inevitably cost the lead, whereas perhaps this time, among other things, she, as we discussed, she probably can't lose that lead in such short a time and is able to actually relax and be closer to a human being. That was a, a very uh, different kind of election, whereas this time, you know, it's a, it's a wide open field. I don't feel like there is, you know, this desire to get anybody out of City Hall because the incumbent already left. So because I can also guess like where a majority of our Toronto audience sort of sits politically, I'm going to guess that for a lot of them, they're trying to choose between Olivia Chow and longtime council maverick and veteran of the Ford and Tory years, Georgia Mammoliti. <laughs> no, I mean, like, so like, although interestingly, he is on the ballot having recent after having recently like come in third place in a run for mayor of Wasaga Beach. So like, well, what is the deal with Josh Matlow these days? How would you summarize that? Uh, I mean, I think Josh Matlow is like one of the most fascinating people I've, I've covered at City Hall, just because I mean, you'll remember this. We used to like dunk on mm -hmm. Josh Matlow just unrelentingly on Twitter, especially, you know, for this whole like mushy middle truth is in the middle kind of thing that he was always trying to perpetuate about himself. Uh, you know, it's like we got the leftist radicals over here and the conservative radicals over here. And then there's me in the middle. And I, uh, I found the, the real truth of on every issue based on evidence and blah, blah, blah. You know, to see a guy go from that to Josh Matlow today, who is somebody that, you know, I think got pretty maybe not comfortable, but accepting of being like opposition to John Tory. Being the guy who would get up at council to, to ask John Tory a question and you could hear John Tory just like sigh, this angry sigh of like, oh, God, this guy again. So I, I think that has been fascinating to, mm -hmm. to watch play out. And in this election, you know, we see somebody who has positioned himself on a lot of issues like to the left of Olivia Chow. Can you give some examples of that? I mean, if, if you look at the property tax issue, for one, you know, Olivia Chow has been 
pretty consistent in not giving a number, but saying, you know, it's going to be modest. I'm not looking at, you know, increasing taxes uh, a huge amount on people in Toronto. Matlow has come out and said, you know, we're doing a a 2% tax levy. We're doing a commercial parking levy, you know, not only, you know, just talking about alternatives to the police, we're talking about freezing the police budget for three years and using that funds for other things. Like it is, you know, in some ways, maybe just more outright about some of these these policies than, than Chow is being. But I do think, you know, he has burnished some credibility with the left in this city for just coming out and saying it. Here's here's my platform. Here's what I'm going to do. Why do you think he has changed? Like, was he actually radicalized over years of being across from Tory? It's an interesting, like, hypothetical, right? Like, if John Tory, when he was elected in 2014, had gone to Josh Matlow and said, hey, like, I won't you know, I want you to be on my team. Like, I, I want you to, I mean, maybe you can be TTC chair, or you can be on infrastructure and environment committee, or, or you know, something kind of high profile. How would that have played out? Because there was a time where I think that's all Matlow really wanted was to be in those kinds of positions. Being in that position of being like, well, I guess I'm on the outs with the mayor, and then seeing issues, two in particular, the Gardner East the question of whether we should rebuild it at a cost of a billion dollars plus or take it down to a uh, uh, boulevard, which would unlock some more housing opportunities. That question, uh, Tory and Matlow found themselves on opposite sides of. And then the Scarborough subway, you know, Matlow spent so much time fighting against what he saw was just an unnecessary, way too expensive and a plan that would almost certainly face really long delays and force Scarborough transit riders to deal with crowded buses for years and years and years as they waited for the subway to open. Matlow was was sounding the alarm about that when very few others were. And he's largely been proven correct. So I think it's a bit of like a, you know, he's he's taken these positions and in a lot of cases been proven right. So when that's the situation, why not double down? I guess like, I like he wasn't the only person taking those positions. He just, like, I think, did it loudly and effectively. And you know, like what the left would off, like the lefty counselors would often say, well, he, instead of actually working to advance policy on those issues or trying to fight what the mayor is doing, he just made a show of it. Yeah. That's always been a, a pretty consistent criticism of Matt Lowe. And I think it's pretty well-founded is that he's looking to be recognized for taking a position more than he might be looking to actually, like, make change happen. So Anna Bailau was on council for, I guess, for quite some time. For, was it 2010 up through, I think she, like, up through last year, I believe. Yeah, 2022. Yeah, so my impression of her current shtick is... She's promising more of the same, but just a little bit different somehow, which is kind of like the capital L liberal defaults generally. Is that a fair assessment? Like, is there anything to be said for its wisdom? Um, I I think if you look at Anna Bailau and we're going to talk about Brad Bradford, you know, both of them are running on the Tory legacy. I think Anna Bailau is saying, you know, let's just basically keep what Tory was doing, but maybe take like a half step to the left on some issues. Brad Bradford is saying, you know, let's basically keep the Tory machine going, but take a step to the right. So it is is similar approaches for both of them and that it's rooted in this idea that, you know, basically things were going great. We just need to make some tweaks to, you know, what Tory was doing, but nothing major. And uh, we'll just keep on keeping on. I don't think that's been a super effective message in this campaign because, I think people are sort of really perceiving that Toronto feels broken right now. 
classic examples like transit service and you know public safety, but also things like, hey, the, the garbage cans seem to be broken and overflowing a lot. And like, can we just get that fixed? Has anyone asked her about the fact that she's working with Nick Kuvalis, who like was one of the people she was at drinking with immediately prior to her DUI in 2012? Like, you'd think she'd avoid any association that would call to mind her lowest point on council. Has that come up at all? It has come up in uh, various debate questions, uh, a few sort of conversations uh, about it. But uh, you will not be surprised to learn that her answer on her association with Nick Kuvalis is basically the same as John Tory's answer on why he associated with Nick Kuvalis for years and years and years, which is something like, you know what, I'm just happy to have a, a great base of, of people who support me in my campaign and are working to, to help. And that is about all you will, will get from it. Brad Bradford, he's someone who I managed to miss, basically. I, I He didn't get elected to council for the first time until 2018. I was already off the city hall beat for the most part by then. He was only someone who was ever on my periphery. It always seemed like a joke to me. It was it fucking blew my mind when I learned he's younger than I am and if also <laughs> younger than you are. Yep. Once I was able to finally get the question answered, what was the deal with his name? And he had that they had a video that was very helpful to explain that. So... Um... My dad and my uncle were dairy farmers, and between the two of them, they had five girls. So it was clear that the Bradford name was going to be extinguished over time. So when I got married, I took my spouse's last name. And when I had my first child, turned out to be a boy, Brad, and I gave him the name Bradford as a way of prolonging the name a little bit longer. So as time went on, it became clear that in the best interest of the children, I was going to need to raise these kids on my own. But since I was going to be raising them by myself, I wanted to raise them as Bradfords. So Brad, seven at the time, we sat down and had a little chat about it. Maybe we want to change your first name. Do you want to be Stephen, Michael, David? Nope. He said, I go by Brad. I want to be Brad. He said, Okay, so you'll be Brad Bradford then. Once I was able to get that and his age out of the way, I guess I wonder, who the fuck is this guy? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, Bradford came out of nowhere for me too. But I mean, the the challenge with with Bradford is that he was a certain kind of politician uh, as city councilor. And then he decided he was going to run for mayor. And it almost feels like he decided, you know what, I'm going to like make like a, a bit of a old school pro wrestler heel turn, you know, like I'm just going to like embrace this conservative side of me that was not readily apparent in such an obvert and obvious way uh, during his tenure uh, on council because he's really leaned into it. You know, like the classic example was, you know, this is a guy who when council had a debate in in the summer of 2020 about the police budget, released a pretty thoughtful statement uh, supporting Black Lives Matter, voted to look at reducing the police budget by 10 percent in the coming budget cycle. That motion failed, but he was on the side that voted for it. And then all of a sudden, you know, this past January, when it was clear who's going to run for mayor, he's, you know, at council talking, you know, asking Councillor Alejandro Bravo, like angrily, like, does this motion defund the police? Like, are you in favor of defunding the police? You know, that is something that is, I think a lot of other people would find challenging to justify that sort of mindset shift in a relatively short time. But uh, for Bradford, I do think it's a case where, you know, once you get people in your ear telling you, you know, you can be mayor, 
Uh, you have what it takes. You just need to sort of run in this lane and say these things. Uh, that can be a bit of a siren song for for politicians. And I guess speaking of people embracing their conservative most parts of themselves for the purpose of political expediency and or convenience and or attention, Anthony Fury. I feel like I should be asking you questions about Anthony Fury. Yeah. Uh, so Anthony Fury, back when I knew him, we were good friends from like 2005 to 2010. He was a right-leaning liberal. He was like an Ignatieff liberal. We did the Post to Toronto political panel together. That was this National Post Monday debate thing. Uh, but missile politics, they put Chris uh, – it's something Anthony and I pitched together to the to the Post. They put Chris Selly in there as well because they didn't think Anthony would be right-wing enough. The short thing is that like he left Toronto at the end of 2010 to take a job as comment editor of the Ottawa Sun. So to become like the, the Adrian Batra of the Ottawa Sun, they started doing stuff for Sun News and then just – yeah, how do you get from there to doing stuff about like writing a book or an ebook about electromagnetic pulses? I don't know. Yeah, is it a performance or did it start as a performance? Like, how is in your read? Is this a sincere political evolution? Uh, I think it is at this point. Uh, I think it started as a performance. It's a way to project oneself and one's own attitude and masculinity out into the world to play the role of pundit. I mean, there's always an aspect of performance to any sort of punditry. You know, as many people have figured out, there tend to be a lot more opportunities and a lot more lucrative opportunities for pundits uh, of a certain right-wing blowhard variety. So Glenn Murray was like the former mayor of Winnipeg back when he was seriously considering running for mayor of Toronto back in like late 2009. I remember I remember Anthony saying, like having this line, like, I don't think you should be get to be mayor of Toronto unless you know where Adelaide and Tecumseh is. And there's nothing special about that intersection. But I, I mean, I always liked the line, but I guess it never occurred to anyone to have a, a test of like, how many arms do you think a human being has? <laughs> uh, so Ben Spur, my former colleague at now, who's now in the City Hall Bureau at the Star, realized that a lot of his, the images in his campaign posters or literature was AI generated, including one that as many AI generated things are, was not anatomically correct, but like in a really, the, the woman had three arms. How long have that been circulating before anyone noticed? And what does that say about the state of coverage of City Hall? I don't, <laughs> I don't think it, an answer to that. But <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think it had been circulating for, for that long. Um, because basically, as far as I can tell, what happened is, you know, Anthony Fury had been making regular campaign announcements, which I had been reading as they were posted. And and then at some point, uh, I think the campaign decided they needed a platform. And if you actually go through like the text of the platform, people were pretty preoccupied with the images because they were hilarious. But the, the text is largely just like copy and paste of his various sort of announcement press releases that had already been posted on the website. And I guess they decided that, you know, to illustrate, we need some images and uh, this chat GPT uh, image generation stuff is, is all the rage right now. So let's just type in prompts like tent city and park or police officer. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until Ben Spur started looking at this document which didn't make much of a splash. Uh, it was just posted on the website inconspicuously that people really started to see how much was wrong with the images that were illustrating this platform document. Yeah, and so the, the image for illustrating his things about housing, I guess, broadly, or clearing parks and park encampments is a park that, you know, looks like it plausibly could be Trinity Bellwoods if all the people who were living there uh, were had very expensive, very nice tents that they would probably also take to like Algonquin for a couple weeks a year. 
Yeah, this looks really nice. Like this is like appealing. You you see an image like this of very uh, nicely maintained, uh, high end tents in, in rows in, in a park, and you're like, oh, this this is mm -hmm. this is you know a good campground for the summer. Like let let's go. We'll we'll take the kids. It's very funny to me that like some campaign staffer like at least glanced at these as they came out of the AI image generation and was like, yeah, that's fine. Like that, that like, well, that'll work. I mean, one other thing about this election, and I know, I feel I've discussed this on the show, Alice and I discussed this on the show before, is like how many characters we've been blessed with. So Ben Bankus, that that was a name that surprised me. Do you know who that is? I do not know Ben Bankus. Who's Ben Bankus? I know, he's a, he's a right-wing comedian slash podcaster guy who, would, who was organizing these like weird conservative comedy nights in, honestly, not Christy Pitts, like Harvard Square Park, but he, I remember, I know him because he was the guy who, Kathy Jones in This Hour's 22 Minutes did a really long podcast with him about uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories and vaccine stuff. And uh, I don't know if that was, the I don't think that by itself was the reason she was not asked back on the show, but uh, it is quite a video that not enough people have seen. They're killing people. And they're covering like like a Facebook book group with victim uh, families of COVID vaccine victims came up, boom 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 boom, ten thousand people a day joined that fucker, and Facebook pulls it off to cover that people are being injured by the shot. You're listening to the Ben Bankus podcast. Chloe Brown, people like her. Kind of remember her from last time. Is she cool? Chloe Brown is, is I think, very cool. Really impressive showing last fall. Mm -hmm. You know, a strong third place finish. People had pretty high hopes uh, for her coming into this campaign. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, one of the things that still happens with mayoral elections in Toronto is some arbitrary decisions get made about who the top contenders are early on. And it becomes very, very hard to, to shake that up. Uh, it took a while, for example, for Anthony Fury to make any debate stages. Brad Bradford's polling numbers probably didn't justify his inclusion in some of the debates that he was still invited to. And Chloe Brown, for whatever reason, uh, was not included uh, off the, the top. And if you don't have that opportunity to get out there in front of the people, uh, I don't understand how you're supposed to really grow your support beyond sort of single digit levels. I think you should vote for me as your mayor because I'm the only candidate talking about supporting the working class. We have a group of politicians that have been serving the needs of executives and management consultants for the past decade, and that's made our town into a, into a tourist attraction. People can no longer live. Selena Caesar Chavan, the former liberal MP, I think she was an independent MP then, and she was also one of the original panelists on the backbench. I don't know how many episodes she did. I've always, like, another one of the names I'm scrolling, oh, yeah, she's running for mayor? Yeah, that that is a bizarre one. I, some of these names, you're like, why? I know it's not a huge amount of money uh, or time to get your name on the ballot, but like, why bother? Like, isn't it going to be demoralizing when you're sitting at home on election night and you see like your name with like, you know, zero point whatever percent next to it? Like, I feel like I would sort of like, you know, need to go into hiding for a bit after that happened to me. Oh, yeah, I just grouped in with others on the TV. Um Kevin Clark, I mean, for all the things that change in Toronto, it's really nice to see that he's still running. Yeah, I know. It's nice to have our traditions. Kevin Clark running for every position he can run for. Always happy to see it. Frank D'Angelo, that's another weird, like the beverage magnate who has, I don't know, he still has his own talk show on late night TV that he pays, actually paid advertising space. Do you? Yeah, I think it was called Being Frank. 
It's the Being Frank Show, starring Frank D'Angelo. On tonight's show, part two of Being Frank versus Journalism. With guests, Toronto Sun journalist Joe Warmington and writer for the National Observer, Sean Craig, and singer Carol McCartney. Good, good title. I mean, let's give credit for, for a good title. Uh, I'm not I'm sure if it's still on the air or not. Uh, Frank D'Angelo is another one where you heard early on, oh, Frank D'Angelo is running for mayor. This is going to be hilarious. He's going to be all over the place. Hasn't really been that I can see. You know, maybe it's just that, you know, nobody's covering it, but I don't get the sense that he's making a lot of waves. Yeah, I think I still have an episode of Being Frank on my video recorder at home from just before the pandemic when the guests were Joe Warmington and Sean Craig together. What a duo. Exactly. <laughs> Toby Heaps, the son of Adrian Heaps, but is it actually a dog that's on the ballot? Or no, it's actually Toby Heaps that's on the ballot. He's the publisher or co-founder of Corporate Nights magazine, the son of former counselor Adrian Heaps. But I remember seeing his name pop up on the ballot or pop up on that he'd registered, but then reading that, oh no, he wanted to actually register his dog, but because his dog doesn't have ID and it's not a human, he couldn't put the dog on the ballot. The latest candidates coming from all walks of life. Including this seven-year-old shepherd named Molly, who registered seconds before the deadline. Anybody who thinks it's a joke, I encourage them on Monday, when the site goes live, mollyfromair.ca, I encourage them to check it out and see the substantive policies. I feel like what he was hoping for was kind of like an Airbud situation where like he would show up at City Hall with the dog and be like, my dog is going to run for mayor. Ah. And they'd be like, <laughs> uh, no, not allowed. And he'd be like, show me in the rule book where it says a dog can't run for mayor. Apparently, they were able to produce some kind of rule saying that is not allowed. So uh, he had to go with uh, himself, a human being on the ballot. Probably disappointing. To everyone. Really. Uh, an interesting side note is his his father, the former counselor Adrian Heaps, had a, a pretty darn good op-ed in the Star recently, sort of talking about the election and how important it was. Uh, did not mention that his son slash dog is running oh, for mayor. Shit. Just leave that out of there. So I'm not sure how uh, how it's playing in the family. Mitzi Hunter. I remember covering her when she ran, first ran in a by-election for Scarborough Guildwood as a liberal. Mm-hmm. I remember covering her, I think, when she was running for liberal leadership. And now she and I remember covering her when she was like running civic action, I think. I mean, as far as, you know, polling numbers go, she's mired in the same morass of candidates vying for second, third, fourth place as, uh, you know, everybody who was not named Olivia Chow. So not great from that perspective. I will say, like, uh, when I heard Mitzi Hunter was running for mayor, my first reaction was, you know, a bit to sort of dismiss it as like, this probably isn't going to go anywhere. You know, Ontario liberals are looking for anything that's better than their current reality. So why not uh, run for mayor, I guess, from that perspective? But she has been the candidate whose policy has, like, impressed me the most. Like, she's taken this really seriously. She was the first to actually put out, like, a fully costed budget of here's what I would do if if I were mayor. Um, You know, it's not, I'm pretty sure, going to be enough to get her, you know, over the top and make her the next mayor of Toronto. But uh, this is not a situation where it was just like, you know, throwing her hat in the ring for the hell of it. Like she took this really, really seriously. And uh, I was happy to see that. I guess Mark Saunders. I guess we have to talk about Mark Saunders. He was going to talk about Mark Saunders. Yeah, (sighs) we have to talk about Mark Saunders. Doug Ford's choice. Mm hmm. Yeah, it came out today that uh, Doug Ford has a lawn sign for Mark Saunders. Brian Mm. Lilly in The Sun reported that. I mean, it's been a fascinating sort of standard Doug Ford thing where... For a while there, he was 
having press conferences where we would be asked about the mayoral election mm-hmm. and say, I'm not going to get involved. But this Mark Saunders guy seems pretty cool, doesn't he? Like this, this seems like the guy who uh, is cut out for the job. Yeah, we need someone who's familiar with law and order and has run a very large organization and has right. not been a counselor. Yeah, the, whether he ran that organization effectively seems secondary to the fact that he did, in fact, run it for a number of years. You know, I I've think Doug Ford has been weighing in less on this campaign as it's gone on. And maybe that's because the writing is on the wall for Mark Saunders. And I do think like Anthony Fury has stolen a lot of Mark Saunders thunder. But they have a, a very similar list of, of platform promises, you know, tearing out the bike lanes and this kind of stuff. But Fury has been more effective at communicating than Saunders has. And as a result, Fury was able to get a, a bit of a foothold get on those debate stages, has been ahead of Saunders in some polls or, you know, close to him. So I think we can confidently say that it's extremely unlikely that Mark Saunders will win. Yes. So assuming that that someone that Doug Ford doesn't like wins, that's to say anyone other than like Saunders or maybe Giorgio Manaliti. Like if Doug Ford wanted to fuck with that new mayor, what do you think he'd be most likely to do? Um, I mean, there's a few things people have asked, you know, is Doug Ford going to take away the strong mayor powers that were just given to Toronto uh, last year. And he could well do that. I'd be a bit bit surprised now just because he's gone out and given them to more municipalities last week. But that's uh, just to make so it funnier when he does take it away from Toronto. When he does take it away from Toronto, yeah. Like it would it would be really, uh, you know, quite the thing to see that happen. But I mean, that's kind of irrelevant in the sense that Olivia Chow, the, the front runner, has said she's not going to use the strong mayor powers anyway. So... Uh, whether she has them or not is not super material to her mayorality, though. I mean, she could, you know, push came to shove, uh, break that promise and use them. And I think there's some cases where the voters and public would be like, yeah, that makes sense. Like she was in a between a rock and a hard place and it, it made sense for her to go back and actually use the veto power or whatever. I did want to ask about that. But to the question of uh, like, if that's not going to change, mm-hmm. what do you think Doug Ford would be likely to do? Uh, I mean, the big role for for Doug Ford is is going to be like the city is broke right now. Like the city needs money. Property taxes can only help so much to get out of this, you know, accumulated one point five billion dollar budget hole. So Olivia Chow, should she be mayor, is going to be visiting Doug Ford soon after Election Day and trying to work out a deal. And that how those negotiations go could be helpful for, for Toronto. Uh, they could be, you know, really disappointing for Toronto, or they could be a situation where, you know, Doug Ford puts a bunch of conditions on support for uh, the city's finances in terms of any number of things that could get in the way of, say, Olivia Chow's plans to look at uh, reversing the decision on the gardener. So, like, that is is something that I, I'm going to be watching very closely because it, it is going to be a, a pretty pivotal negotiation, you know, both at the provincial level and the federal level as well with Justin Trudeau. Yeah, it never even occurred to me that he might negotiate and try to attach things to negotiation simply because I feel like he knows he has all the leverage. The very reason that, like, budget shortfall is as much of a problem as it is generally is because of city can, the city cannot carry a budget shortfall. They cannot have a deficit year over year. And that was something that, you know, the Mike Harris Conservatives put in across all municipalities to really constrict their ability to budget for themselves and take care of themselves. And so I've been kind of expecting that Doug Ford, I mean, I guess, the, you know, the smart, elegant thing would be to, you know, introduce as a condition in, in negotiations. I guess that's what most premiers would do. But I've also kind of just assumed that he'll be like, 
no, the city can't reduce the police budget. It can never go down. Or, you know, the City of Toronto Act lists the, all these different other types of taxes the city of Toronto can levy. No, it no longer does. And, like, I, I suspect, if given that it seems unlikely that he'll take away the strong mayor powers, I feel like he'll find other ways to more or less constrain what the city of Toronto could do. Yeah, I think the Doug Ford's dream, you know, if he can't be mayor himself, is to basically turn the mayor and council into like a body that really only deals with like the localist of local issues, you know, so the stuff he didn't but, like dealing with really. Yeah, exactly. So let them deal with the stop signs and the potholes and whatever else. And, you know, the actual like city building stuff will happen at the provincial level. The The, the challenge there is that Doug Ford's government can only do so much and also has 400 plus other municipalities that they need to work with and and deal with. So I think for Olivia Chow, you know, she's going to be looking or should be looking if should she be mayor at like the Christia Freeland playbook for how to deal with Doug Ford, because Doug Ford came to Queens Park really sort of ready to take aim at the trio liberals and, and fight them at every turn and sue them over the carbon tax and whatever else. But now, you know, you listen to Doug talk about Justin and Christia and they're like best of pals, you know? So I don't think Doug Ford is like a tactical strategic mastermind. I think uh, especially the Doug Ford of late is somebody who really wants people to like him. And you're almost better mm, yeah. to sort of start with like a oppositional position and then make Doug feel like he's won you over with his folksy charm. Than like the John Tory approach, which I think was like immediately trying to be like Doug Ford's best buddy and just getting taken advantage of repeatedly uh, over his tenure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he really, really wants to be liked, but he does not like people. So in a, in a universe in which Doug Ford decides that he's already meddled with Toronto enough because maybe he's decided it's more fun to keep toying with Patrick Brown because it is, what, what else would the new mayor be up against? Is the budget shortfall, I guess, the presumably the single biggest, most immediate thing, because you can't. Yeah, you know, the, the budget stuff is is so huge and really is so big that I don't really feel like it's been possible to grapple with it in the context of a mayoral campaign. You know, like what is the actual financial situation? The city has been like leaving little notes and reports here and there saying like, hey, uh, we'd like to like maintain the number of shelter beds in 2024. But right now we're sort of planning to reduce the number just because we aren't sure we're going to have enough money to operate the shelters this level. Uh, we're going to start hearing a lot more of that stuff after the election, you know, as we start getting more staff reports and the new mayor makes her positions and directions clear. So that that's like has serious implications. Like you think about the situation right now with homelessness in Toronto and the lack of housing, and you imagine a situation where there are, you know, are hundreds of fewer shelter beds available. Like, what does that look like in this city? That's like life or death, right? I have started to hear some private uh, justifications for why from conservative leaning people as to why Olivia Chow being the mayor after June 26 is actually a good thing for them because there's going to be such a, a shitstorm of terrible things that are coming the city's way that they might as well let a left-wing mayor wear that and then be in a position in 2026, the next regular scheduled election, to, you know, run a, a right-wing populist campaign against it and talking about how, you know, Olivia Chow has, has raised taxes by X percent and, uh, you know, has increased the budget for these kinds of services and we need somebody to come in and start stopping the gravy train again. 
Yeah, that's always the downside of being in power is having to basically wear all the shit that would probably have happened anyway uh, yeah. in a large institution. And it's like, oh, now you're the person in charge. Now, now you're the person who is has a responsibility for it. And uh, it doesn't matter if there's nothing you could have done because it, bureaucracies are necessarily you know monstrosities that have their own they're in their institutions. You can't just change them on a dime. And even if you could, that would probably be scary. So Olivia Chow and I think Josh Matlow and some others have said they would not use the strong mayor powers if elected. How long would you give them before changing? How long would you give them as mayor before changing their minds? Um, I don't necessarily think it's a, a change in their mind thing. I think it is how do you define the strong mayor powers, right? Like one of the things that the new legislation did is gave the mayor the power to propose the budget, basically write the budget themselves, propose it to council. And it's a situation where literally like if council, council doesn't need to approve the budget, they have the opportunity to amend it. But if they just take no action, the budget that the mayor proposes becomes the budget for the city. I haven't asked them directly, but my sense is that when Chow and Matlow talk about not using the strong mayor powers, they're referring to the vetoes. They're not referring to the budget situation. So I do think that those two would take a more collaborative approach to budgeting than some others might and try to you know still have a budget committee and still have council input and all this stuff. But I think when push comes to shove, you know, that power for the mayor to basically say, here's the budget for the city is you know, an enormous power and opportunity to really sort of shape the city in various ways, you know, whether it's progressive ways or, or conservative ways. For so long in Toronto, like for the past know, decade, it seemed, I guess, John Tory's, one of his talents was kind of like rubbing away sort of hope that keeping this, everything down to this dull blue gray veneer to everything where you believe that this is the, as good as it's ever going to get and it's not going to get any better and this is what we should learn to accept. And now I feel like for the first time, there's an opportunity for color. And I feel like this mayor election has already brought that in. Do you have hope? I do. I think, I, I mean, if I didn't have any hope, I'd probably move out of the city, uh, honestly. But, you know, I recently had a, a child, decided to raise that child in the city, excited to raise that child in the city. Like, these are all things that I have to have hope to make that choice. And I also think, like, so much of the effect that Rob Ford and then John Tory had on the city was, you know, less about budget numbers and policy directions and more sort of like instilling this culture at City Hall amongst the people who work there. Like, just don't try to do too much. Like, uh, keep the budget at zero percent if you can. Like, we're not looking at expanding things. The question of like, you know, what would it take to run a really good program was never really asked. It was, you know, what's the best we can do with the resources that we have? And that, you know, can be a, a reasonable approach for a year or two if you are dealing with a really tough budget situation. But for that to perpetuate itself for more than a decade has had some serious effects on the city, you know? And I think it wasn't until recently that the city started to really take notice of, you know, how broken things were, but that happened over a long period of time. So for me, you know, the idea that some, a new mayor could get in there and say, you know what, like, let's, it's okay to, this sounds incredibly corny, but it's, it's okay to like, you know, strive for something again, like, you know, tell us what you need and you're not going to get all the budget that you want, but maybe you'll get some of it. And maybe that actually leads to us getting out of this, like 
sort of mediocre city where, you know, the best we can hope for is, is just sort of okay. Now it's time for Foreseeable Disaster of the Month. Yeah, my foreseeable disaster of the month is Doug Ford will realize or someone will bring to his attention that he hasn't thrown a bone to the social conservatives in about five years or so. And that uh, he'll decide to take a gamble the way that New Brunswick's Blaine Higgs has taken a gamble and try to see what he can do to win some points with the far right by rolling back some existing protections uh, in law or education policy for trans people and or uh, trans youth. The better instincts may come over him. They may decide, like, you know what, it's just not worth picking that fight. Or they might decide that a year into a new mandate is the perfect time to pick that fight, to deal with it, get out of the way, get the social conservatives, the Charles McBeadies or whomever it is these days, back on side. And uh, maybe they're just waiting for Pride Month to end. Matt, did you have a foreseeable disaster for this coming month? I sure do. Uh, This one might last longer than just the month ahead, but I think it's absolutely a foreseeable disaster. I'm going to go with Smart Track, Mm. uh, John Tory's signature transit plan from 2014. It started life as a plan to build a 22 stop rail line across the city would be running by 2021. It's not and would come at a cost of zero dollars to property tax payers that uh, didn't pan out. Smart Track, though, still exists somehow, even though John Tory is no longer at City Hall. Council last week uh, approved a new provincial contribution of $226 million for Smart Track, uh, which is now a collection of five GO stations. The province is paying for about 13% with this new contribution. City is paying for much of the rest. The province will own the stations, operate the stations. Look, this is a weird deal. Uh, I think most people don't really understand that it still exists no. as a, well, as it never a brand. Really ex- yeah, as a brand, exactly. Exactly. So uh, the foreseeable disaster part comes in, in a couple of places. The province has not yet provided a guarantee that these five GO stations that will be branded Smart Track will uh, use the same fare system as the TTC. So there is a real chance that in the future, uh, TTC riders who want to board or transfer at these stations are looking at an extra fare or a premium fare or something you know similar to like current go transit rates or up express rates or whatever it's going to be. That is a, a possibility that you know you feel like you should know that that's not going to happen. But so far, no guarantee. Uh, And also this latest provincial contribution includes some interesting conditions from the province, including that the city will support alternative flood protection measures for the East Harbor site, should they be determined to be necessary. Don't know what that means. And also that the city will support and work collaboratively on the province's transit-oriented community proposals. So there's a bit of like a almost non-disparagement clause in there where it's like the province is finally giving the city some money for this transit project that it will own. But, you know, they're hoping that the city will talk nice about some of their other efforts uh, as part of it. Very, very strange. Doesn't seem like a great deal. I think it's absolutely a foreseeable disaster. Oh, it's been a foreseeable disaster since the the minute he announced it in 2014. (laughs) And that was Wagley Dog, a show about how many limbs a computer thinks a human has. Thank you for joining me, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Always happy to be here. I think the answer is like two-ish. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can find me on 
Twitter still, amazingly, at Goldsby and occasionally hosting Shortcuts, which is the media criticism show that comes out Thursday on the main Candleland feed. Where can people find you, Matt? Uh, they can still find me on Twitter at, at GraphicMatt, uh, for now, anyway. Uh, and also, uh, my weekly newsletter, City Hall Watcher, can be found mm-hmm. at cityhallwatcher.com. Cool. And in the, you can, the people can find you in the star. And our producer is Katie Lore. Annette Ajofo is our managing editor. And our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to candleland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.